Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I will never give in to the dark side. This is episode 67. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. And part-time Sith Lord. How you doing, Joseph? <laughs> I'm doing good. <laughs> I always considered myself to be uh, a Jedi Knight sort of kind of guy. Yeah, me too. The Qui-Gon Jinn sort of knight that will not put up with the council. And so even though I'm wiser and older than many of them, I'm going to stay a Jedi Knight forever. Uh, you're talking about the first three episodes of like, gouge my eyes out. I don't want to watch them episodes yeah okay whatever <laughs> okay okay the episodes don't <laughs> exist but the character of qui-gon jinn does he's just that good uh whose whose character was that liam neeson's liam neeson's character yeah I'm not sure why you think he was a great character i thought he was way out of place in those movies and should never have been cast but that's okay hmm. okay how you doing aside from how you well, feel okay. about star wars <laughs> <laughs> i love star wars but those first three movies i Got them with the third one. I was like, I think they they marketed me a bunch of junk. I was not happy with them. Yeah, I, they got I better after more. You'll they notice that we'll never take the time out to review Star Wars movies on this show, even though they are only a little bit related to science fiction. But yeah, now the, the, the red salt right planet, here. the red salt planet, and Snoke and um. Uh, what's her head? The actress who figured out that she could take a starship and go jump to light speed and blow up another big, st- like no one ever thought of that before. Oh yeah. And then they had all of a sudden they have gas problems. I think I've ranted about this before on our show, so I won't tire the listeners, but <laughs> yeah. by and large, awesome series, but the little parts like, no, what have you done? Okay. Yeah. And I think you just quoted the movie with no. Uh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I wanted the listeners to know that as much as we love discussing beekeeping and our bees here, Rob, I have something in the works with another friend of mine who is a beekeeper who has a lot of experience doing it in the past, Yeah. who wants to put together some interesting things to do with beekeeping in the future. Okay. And he has approached me about making a beekeeping related podcast. And I wanted to ask you and our listeners, if y'all have any ideas for topics or expectations of what you would like to hear about bees, if you want to give us any inspiration of ideas, pass them along. Yeah, yeah. Just reach out to us. Let me know. What do you need to start? How do you start? What do you expect your first month? What, you know, go through this, what you have to do in a, in a year, diseases you need to look for. Here's the work you need to do. Here's how you get your honey. Alternate ways of doing beekeeping, historical ways of doing beekeeping. Yeah, that'd be a fun, fun series. Yeah, thank you. And of course, we're going to have to have you as a guest on the podcast because <laughs> why wouldn't we? All right. It's going to be fun. The guy who, who really doesn't know anything but likes to fiddle around with stuff. Yeah, that's real smart. <laughs> I, do, I do have some ideas that I think that you could be particularly useful for All right. as a scientist. He's more of the salt of the earth, the experienced laborer on the field. This guy... Likes to get his green sleeves. He has a lot of experience with landscaping and that kind of landscape design. And he knows a thing or two about bees because he's kept several, several colonies. Okay. He just wants to grow this opportunity in the future. Right. So he wanted to right. do well, a podcast together and I couldn't say no. If I can help, I'll be glad to help you. That sounds like a cool idea. Now my bees, I opened them up the other day and I'm um, looking at the the scale that's reporting to the internet about how much my beehive weighs. I'm like, it's getting lighter. Is my scale wrong or something? No, they've been eating their honey. They're still 
capped brood, so I know they're still raising babies. Okay. And there's still a couple heavy frames, like those ones are all joined together. They're filled with honey, but the outer edge ones they've eaten honey out of. Mm, okay. Makes sense this so time. Cl- it's the lull in the summertime. It's it's the lull, but I don't want this. I wanted them to maintain their honey, not go down. So now I'm worried. If they don't have a good end of season run, it's going to be a trouble to keep them alive through the winter. What would happen if you fed honeybees honey from like the grocery store? Would anything happen? Uh, well, it's half corn syrup. You're, you're, Does this affect the space-time continuum or anything like that? You'll be feeding them corn syrup and pesticides from China. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Don't want any mutant bees. Not a good idea. Yeah. No. It's. It's. I'm gonna feed them sugar water or protein patty or something like that over the winter if necessary. Okay. Well, then let's move on to the main topic. Yeah. We have a lot to discuss today. We do. This has been something that you and I are interested in discussing. It is connected to the very essence of our podcast, the theme of the show. Okay. But what is our topic for today? Want to tell me, tell the audience. I know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the dark side of science. The dark side. How does that relate to Equinox? Well, never give in to the dark side. Yeah. And with Equinox, we primarily have uh, just a, a passion and an interest in all sciences and exploring everything that goes up uh, in your head, Rob. There's all kinds of fascinating science knowledge there. Okay. There, it's also a fair point to make that there's just a lot of creepy, unethical, challenging, disturbing, complicated things that show up in the fields of science that we haven't really discussed or we've made allusions to, but we haven't talked about in a while. We are, we're always saying that we're trying to distinguish between the light and the dark. Yes. And so it was only appropriate that we would eventually talk about the dark side of science. Yes. Now, this is not scientific mistakes this is not theories that went by the wayside this is not it's not uh, you know, well it's 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 science being misapplied but dogmatically and in most of these cases if you had questioned the people doing it you would have been shouted down as a luddite you moron you don't understand scientific progress and there are an awful lot of uh, examples that we could use but I didn't want to go back to the 1600s. I didn't want to go back to the even 1800s. 1900s examples are all we need. But there are plenty of other older examples too, huh? Yeah, but most of those are couched in what everyone else believed in at the time also. They're not as egregious. Even like the Salem witch trials, as horrible as that was, well, they're burning witches all over England too, and France and Germany. I mean, it wasn't you know unique to the Americas. But these other things... They should never have been done. And that's uh, where we'll go. And I picked out four examples. There's many more we could use, but I think these four will suffice for today. Okay. And we'll have to do another show of uh, scientific theories that were flawed and bad and got rejected. That would be fun too. Okay. So, so just out of curiosity, in case anybody's mind's already gone there, they've probably heard some disturbing things on podcasts before. Rob, are you? would you say that this episode is safe for younger audiences? We are going to be talking about venereal diseases and we're going without having any anatomical parts. And we're going to be talking about Nazi experiments on Jews and other prisoners in concentration camps. Okay. So everybody, you've been notified if, uh, if you're concerned. Yeah. They're, they're, people are going to die in this episode. Yeah. 
<laughs> Wait, Rob, I, I don't think anybody's going to die in today's episode of the podcast. Oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But we're going to be describing some pretty gruesome experiments. So that, that's a good little caveat you just added. And I hadn't thought of that. So little, little children, it's time to leave the room. It's, okay. It's grown up time. All right, here we go. It's hard to even talk about, but episode number one, science gone awry. Scientists doing things for the advancement of science that they should never have been doing. My choice for the, the start off is the Tuskegee, Tuskegee syphilis experiments starting in the 1930s and running until the story broke in 1972. Mm. That seems an awful lot longer than it ought to have been. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But a group of doctors um, in Tuskegee, Alabama, show 600 black men, 400 of whom had syphilis and 200 of whom did not. And they studied them without treating them year after year after year for a couple of decades. Mm. This is unconscionable because syphilis isn't just a little itchy thing. It literally eats into your mind. It dissolves your bones. Oh. You go insane. You have sores that break out like on your skin that penetrate your skin and go into your bones. That kind of so I mean, it's, it is a horribly disfiguring and debilitating disease. And in third stage syphilis, you go insane and mm. you rage and you do all like Idi Amin, the dictator of Africa, who got deposed when I was in uh, second, uh, second, uh, four, fourth grade, about 1978-ish. I mean, he had gone insane to the point where he was a cannibal. He's a president of a country. And uh, I, I believe that was a syphilis thing. People surmise that Henry VIII had syphilis for various reasons. What makes it even worse is that there were treatments for syphilis back then, but penicillin became available in the middle of World War II. And penicillin is an easy treatment for the early forms of syphilis before antibiotic resistance came about. And what's even worse, worse is that they would have been infecting their wives, they would have been infecting their girlfriends, potentially their children. The community in which this is being done was undergoing a, f a severe financial penalty and it would have been pennies. The doctors could have treated them for pennies, but they decided that because, you know, these are European white doctors and almost certainly they were eugenicists, almost certainly they were racists, almost certainly they thought that they were higher echelon of the evolutionary ladder and they decided to do something and hide it from the general public. Mm and do a long-term study on the effects of syphilis. The story broke in 1972. One of the presidents, I think it was Bill Clinton, issued an apology, um, like I said, would be in the 90s. And um, the last survivor died in the year 2004. I think the last widow of a survivor died in 2009. I think there's still 10 children of the Tuskegee experiment guys who are still alive today, and the government is giving them full health care. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what else to say other than that. I want to scream and yell and call out the injustice of this whole thing. And the effects are still being felt today. I mean, in, in the African-American community today, there is um, a greater distrust of doctors than otherwise, specifically with the COVID-19 stuff. Um, very low rates of acceptance amongst the African-American community. They just they don't trust government in this case, in some cases. And I don't necessarily blame them after this example. 40 years of secrecy. Mm. Ah, okay. <sighs> that was rough. <laughs> yeah, that was terrible. The next one doesn't get any better. Maybe we shouldn't have done this episode. No, no, no. So, what are you thinking is, do you know what the doctors, those, those researchers were thinking? I don't know. I, I put words in their head 
when I talked about eugenics and thinking that Europeans were higher on the evolutionary ladder than blacks, that was very common back in the 30s. I mean, incredibly common. Mm-hmm. The eugenics movement was profound. We don't hear about it today because they don't want anyone to talk about it, but I can't imagine those doctors weren't informed by eugenics theory, but I don't necessarily know. Okay. Yeah, some historian has dug into that more. I'm just using that as an example. Okay. All right. The second, there's a, a town in Georgia, I think it's uh, Milledgeville, uh, east of Atlanta. And if you drive around there, there's this gigantic brick building, and it's the old mental asylum for the state of Georgia. And I do not like going past that place because all I can imagine is all the horrible experiments that were done to people in that place before modern times. Mm. Just the straight jackets, rubber rooms, beating, and uh, lobotomy. I didn't even know what a lobotomy was until fairly recently. Oh, yeah? I always heard as, you know, they, they cut a piece of your brain out. And that was true. <laughs> That's an oversimplification. Yeah, yeah. It was true the early lobotomies. They would literally drill a hole in your head and stick something in the hole. And I'm not sure what they did. But the later ones, they would lift your eyelid up, put an ice pick next to your eyeball and drive it into your skull. And then they would turn it left and right and then left and right, maybe up and down, depending on what they wanted to do, and then pull it out again. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That was science? Yeah, that was science. In fact, um, uh, Antonio Igas Moniz is a Portuguese neurologist, and he won a Nobel Prize in 1949 for this. Oh. There have been a lot of calls for the Nobel Committee to rescind that prize, but they haven't. But this, is, this comes from an evolutionary concept called the triune brain concept. And it's the idea that there are different layers of the brain and they would, you know, you ever hear like the fish part of your brain? Yeah. The animal. Okay. That, that, the a similar idea. The monkey part or the lizard it, brain. It, exactly. So, in the, the main big part of your brain, not the back stem, but the main big part, they've said, oh, there's three different levels of the brain. And since if you look at an evolutionary order of things, you can see different brain sizes and, you know, a lizard, a mammal, and a human. They said, oh, see that? The lizards only have this basic level. Mammals have something on top of that, and humans have something on top of that. So, the reason they're driving the ice pick through the eyeball is because it hits the bottom of the brain, the lizard portion, the animal instinct parts. Yeah, so we're just going to damage up those parts, and somehow that still makes things better. Well, it was the idea that psychological problems were often caused by some parts of the brain that were dominant than others. And if the lizard part of your brain was dominant, well, you know what? What if we just scramble it like we scramble an egg? But that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because it's not like the brain came with an instruction manual and told you, this is how I operate. So what if they were wrong about their theory? Oh, they were, they were wrong about their theory. They were profoundly wrong about their theory. Yeah, because they took action based only on a theory. They didn't even have evidence to prove the theory yet and they acted on the theory without that evidence you see what i'm saying yes like what they were thinking was the lizard brain or that primitive brain was the dominant well then who are you to say that if this were even true that you have the right to scramble up the dominant part of someone's brain what makes it inferior if it is dominant or over the newest evolved layer to the brain? Does mm. it, you see what I'm saying? Like, if the, if the newest is supposed to be the best. No, man, no. Yeah? Okay. Eugenics theory again. 
if you don't fit in with our society, we'll make you fit. <sighs> right. We won. We're dominant. We decide who fits in our society or not. If we don't like you, we'll lock you away or scramble your brain. Mm. Oh, and that was eugenics for you. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this, you know, this outdated, ridiculous evolutionary concept that really probably dates back to Ernst Haeckel, the apostle of deceit, who gave us those fraudulent embryo diagrams where he claimed that the human embryo goes through the stages of evolution as it's developing. That is completely false. We'll have to do a whole show about him. I would love to because the guy was such an incredible good liar and total liar. I mean, rejected anything he did should just be thrown out. The guy was such a creep. But the idea that the human embryo goes through the stages of evolutionary development as it grows, well, in that little teeny stage when we don't have much of a brain, see that that's the fish brain. And then we grow to the reptile brain and then we grow into the modern human brain. So about... 40,000 residents of the United States had a lobotomy mm. between 1936 and 1951. So over a 15-year period. Rose Kennedy. I always knew that JFK had a sister, and I know she always had problems. Um, never knew why, but she had had a lobotomy when she was, a, I think, a teenager or something like that. Mm. And it scrambled her brain. See, what it did was sometimes people recovered from it. Sometimes they would recover with a different personality. Sometimes they would just die. But by doing that, it often made people revert to a baby-like state. Emotionally, you know, they might start wetting themselves again. Uh, they, they, they might have to learn how to eat again. Uh, they would cry a lot. They, they'd be very baby-like. And that was the goal, was to make someone regress. And then as the brain repaired itself, it could do new, they could relearn being a normal human again. Mm. And it didn't work. This is monstrously bad science parading itself as the thing. It feels all too recently. Yeah. All right. Ready for number three? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is terrible. I didn't realize how depressing this was going to be. All right. Number three. Well, okay. Well, then can you take a little bit more time then to describe how science got away from these bad ideas? Ah. What helped us get to the point where these are not still happening today to, that we are aware of? And what precautions have we taken? What steps have we taken to prevent this sort of thing going on even today? Okay. Well, what happened was public outcry slowly built because people don't like being shouted into quiet. That doesn't work for long. And a reputation of a scientist can hold him up for so long before the groundswell builds to the point where people will fight back. And so it's really, it was hubris. It was this overweening sort of a um, personality. Like this guy is like the best in the world and he's billed as Mr. Super Scientist. And, you know, how dare you question a super scientist? And, you know, this is, this is science and this is where it's going. But, but as far as the lobotomy goes, when people realize that it most of the time didn't do what they build it to do and you needed thousands of cases to realize that, then they said, wait a second, this is, this is voodoo science. This isn't true. Mm. I'll have to do another episode on voodoo science. and Voodoo science. We'll use a... a yeah, naturopathy as an example. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just made a lot of people mad saying that. <laughs> well, it's just like your opinion, Rob. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this next one is actually still being done today, but it has a sordid history, and no one knows why it works or when it doesn't work, why it doesn't work. It's called electroshock therapy. 
Oh, yeah. You know, it seems like Hollywood is fascinated with this. It comes up in every doctor show, every show that's <laughs> not about doctors. It, 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 you, can't, you can't throw a rock at a TV show without hitting one of these electroshock therapy treatments. So what they do is they, they shock your brain and cause it to have a seizure for about 40, a 40-second seizure. And the goal is to reset the brain firing patterns to get rid of depression, to get rid of suicidal tendencies, to get rid of alcoholism and things like that. And it doesn't really work. Occasionally it might, but it doesn't usually work. And yet it's still practiced a little bit today, probably for you know cases where nothing else worked. Okay, let's try this last stitch sort of thing. Now I'm making that up, I could be a little bit wrong. Maybe someone knows more and they can write us in and fill in the gaps that I have. But this is um pretty ridiculous. Now the most famous person that I'm aware of who had electroshock therapy was Ernest Hemingway. One I mean 1960s, early 60s. I mean he was like the, the most famous American author probably ever. And he was a womanizer. He was on his fourth wife at this point. He was a drunkard. He was a gambler. He was a outdoorsman. He, he led a quite a life and had a whole bunch of concussions because of it. <laughs> he, I mean, he was in wars, two different wars, you know, famous deep sea fisher, fisherman. And well, he, he's getting on up in age and he is depressed and he's an alcoholic and he has had suicidal thoughts for like, you know, 20 or 30 years. So he goes to the Mayo Clinic in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. Nice little town. I love Rochester. Beautiful town. But he goes there for multiple electroshock therapy treatments and like you know 20 of them spaced out over time i don't remember how many what the number was but a whole bunch of them spaced out over time and they said okay well you can go now but he hadn't been cured of alcoholism or depression or suicidal thoughts and a short time later he gets out a shotgun puts a butt on the floor sticks his mouth over the barrels and squeezes both triggers and that was the end of Ernest Hemingway i think his wife was upstairs at the time mm. so in fact he encouraged his, he had two sons. One of the sons had electroshock therapy and he encouraged his other son to go get electroshock therapy after the first one reported on it. And then he went and got it too. And it, it at least in his case, it, it was pointless. Yeah. Hmm. And so again, it's just a, a very common thing at the time with no real reason behind it. No real world knowledge of effectiveness. Like how often does it work? I mean, who's tracking that? And, and that's that's the issue is I think when start, people started looking at, okay, how often is this treatment successful? Oh, 1%, 10%, whatever the number was. It's like, hey, y'all, um, this is really stupid. You shouldn't be doing this. And that's probably what put it um, on the track for obsolescence, but it hasn't quite gotten all the way there yet. So if it's still practiced today, are they seeing examples where it helped anybody? I mean, in a, in a dramatic sense? Uh, I, I don't know, but yes, it does help some people. Okay does reset something and they can heal, get better, or at least be improved. So if you're a character on a TV show and you have amnesia, will it help you? Oh, that's how they do <laughs> it, huh? Doesn't that induce amnesia? I mean, amnesia is the weirdest thing. They can, they can call that in TV shows all the time. Yes. <laughs> and it happens like, like almost never, and usually it's temporary. It happens even more than shock therapy on a TV show. Really? Oh, that's funny. I, I, I should think so. That. It seems like it happens in every show. <laughs> <laughs> huh, I was trying to make a joke about forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't remember it, right? I couldn't think of it. Okay. So let's let's leave those three behind and I'm gonna park on the fourth one for a while. Okay. I could talk about this one for hours, literally, because part of it strikes close to home, part of it's just a fascinating part of our history. Part of it is just so utterly gruesome that it's hard to discuss. But this is Nazi science. 
And it's not just Nazi science, but it's the Americans and the Russians scooping up the Nazi scientists after the end of World War II. And the Americans specifically in what's called Operation Paperclip, bringing those scientists to the United States, giving them U.S. citizenship and putting them in important places in industry for them to take their knowledge that they gained and give it to America and advanced America so we could fight the Russians. Mm-hmm. The, the history here is sordid and disturbing. It, it, it's, it's really not fun. I just finished listening to an audiobook called Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America by Annie Jacobson. In fact, she was the narrator of the audiobook. It was a long book. At the beginning, was absolutely fascinating. The middle was cool. There's about three quarters of the way through. There's a bit of a lull. And it picked up again at the end. So, okay, there was just too much data, about three quarters, too many names, and I was getting lost. But, I mean, I knew that we had grabbed Nazi scientists and brought them to the States. Um, that was known for forever because, you know, it was, it was common knowledge in the 40s is that what, that's what we were doing. But there was supposed to be, you know, the big Nazis weren't supposed to be brought over. The people guilty of war crimes weren't supposed to be brought over. Right. The, the murderous, evil scientist people were not supposed to be given American citizenship and being put in positions of power in America to influence American policy and American technological development. But they were. Mm. Just two examples of many possible, but just two. Kurt Heinrich Debus, D-E-B-U-S. Maybe it's Debus. I don't know. It's not. That's a weird German name. D-E-B-U-S. He was an ardent SS member during the war. He would wear his SS uniform. That's a Schutzstaffel. That's the um, the barbaric wing of the uh, German army, the SS, the, the group that everyone was afraid of, the group that murdered all the Jews, the group that went through Lithuania and had mass uh, murders of villagers in the woods. They're also the army group, I think, had the highest casualty rate because they were trained to be fearless, right? That means run out and get shot, you moron. They weren't very smart in their... Um, and their army ing. Everyone wanted glory, which means that they risk their lives too much. So, duh. Anyway, well, Debus was an SS officer and the first director of NASA. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ah, what? <laughs> Excuse so me? Okay. No. And his, his background was hidden from the American public because we would not have accepted this. Or someone would throw a hand grenade through his front window or something. You know, I mean, it would, he would not have been accepted. But it was hidden from the general American population. In fact, it was mainly hidden from the State Department. The Army and other groups were bringing people in. And the State Department may or may not have known all of the information. And there were early interviews with these guys that were on file with the CIA. And not shared with the people who were issuing passports. And so there was a lot of behind the scenes machinations by important, powerful people to get these high ranking Nazis over here, not the lower ranking guys, which would have been okay. You know, yeah, I worked in the chemical company. We were making Zyklon B, but I wasn't the guy throwing the pellets into the concentration camp chamber. I was just making the chemical. That's, that's different. So first director of NASA, an SS officer, another, this guy, more famous, much more famous, Werner von Braun. Yes, I know that name. The father of American rocketry. Now, Robert Goddard was really the father of American rocketry, but Werner von Braun was, I think, the designer of the V2, which the Nazis unleashed on on England, basically blowing up England, uh, blowing up London with this this terror we- weapon on purpose. They were targeting civilian populations. Now, we did also, especially later in the war, when we like firebomb Dresden 
and Tokyo and Hamburg and on and on and on and on. We, we blew up major cities, but they weren't obliterating cities. They were raining random bombs down. And, and okay, we're not guiltless here. I'm not trying to assign guilt necessarily, but they're the people who started bombing cities with the V2. Worse than that, um, at the Penamundi plant, they had like 60,000 slave workers. Mm. And you know, when one of them died, they just replaced it. But about 30,000 of them died at that facility. And it was underground. Mm. They had dug tunnels for the manufacturing plant of the V2. And so, they'd send someone down there and they'd work until they died and they would never see the sun again. Wow. And Von Braun was there. And those people were building his rockets. He had no excuse. Now, he papered over his his relationship with that place and tried to not get people to talk about it. And later on in his life, he he did become a Christian and he claims to have been a Christian. And that's that's a neat thought. But was that a, just a culture American Christian or was it a tacit acceptance of the basic tenets of Christianity? Or was there a heartfelt rending and repentance for the evil acts that he had been involved in? I don't know. Yeah. If if there was the latter, it's not an historical record. Maybe he, he did that in private. I don't know. Mm. But for a Nazi to accept Christianity, and that that's pretty extreme yeah. in itself. So maybe there's hope for him, but uh he was involved in really bad things. Yeah, wish we could know. And he was there and he would have watched people die. There's one one famous event where it's a prisoner, I think they tried to escape, so they took a crane. This is underground, and they hoisted up eleven or something Jewish men and hung them in the plant right next to the director's office underground. And so, the director feigned. He said, oh, I didn't know about that or I heard about that. Dude, it was right outside your window, man. And Von Braun would not have been anonymous here, but trying to pin him down. So, But this guy, I mean, were it not for him, we wouldn't have had NASA. We wouldn't have had what we talked about last time, the Saturn V rocket. We would not have gotten men to the moon. His rocket technology became America's rocket technology. And it was a him and his team, it was a direct connection, a direct line of progress from the, the Nazi experiments and successes right into the American program, right up to us launching the Saturn V in 1969 and landing Aldrin and Armstrong on the moon. Mm-hmm. And a 100% direct connection straight back to a death camp and forced labor. That's hard to stomach, man. Yeah. Really hard. But see, it's not just that. I, I know around the office, we might talk about, um, were not for experiments, we wouldn't have learned about uh, anti-malaria drugs. Okay. And I could take that. Um, you know, maybe some people died in horrible experiments. We might as well get good out of the evil, right? If we learned how to treat malaria, we can save a billion people's lives or extend their lives by 30 or 40 years by treating them with malaria. It's a horrible thing that some people were murdered and learning this knowledge, but we have the knowledge now. Let's use it to help people. I understand that. But when you add up all of the experiments that were being done on prisoners and the fact that the U.S. scooped these guys up, the experimenters, and brought that knowledge straight into the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. I mean, they were experimenting by taking people and put them in ice baths, seeing how long they could last, and then trying to revive them afterwards. <sighs> wow. Multiple times. So, this taught us about hypothermia. They were experimenting with getting people to drink exclusively nothing but 
salt water of various dilutions to figure out what dilution of salt water would kill a man. And the only way to figure that out is to kill people doing it. Oh, that didn't work. Okay, let's dilute a little more. They were experimenting with taking salt water and turning it into drinking water. Because one of the big problems when you, you know, abandon ship or crash an airplane and you're in a life raft, you have no water. Well, can we pull enough salt out of that water that we can survive? So they had these machines, they'd be pulling salt out and they feed it, you know, make people drink it and see if they would die or not. They also want to know how hot a human body can survive in, mm-hmm. how long you can survive at various temperatures. They want to know, the Air Force specifically, um, what's the lowest oxygen concentration you can be at before you black out? And how long can you stay at that concentration? And how hard is it to revive a person afterwards? They did low pressure tests, not just low oxygen, but just low pressure. They did high pressure tests, which would lead directly into the Navy diving program. They did rapid depressurization tests where they take a person at atmospheric temperature, uh, pressure or high pressure and just blow the cork off the thing and, and all of a sudden they're at a low pressure, which would make your blood boil, Oof. at least burst your eardrums. They would do rapid pressurization to see what would happen. They experimented on pesticides. Now, Zyklon B is a famous pesticide supposedly used and was used, uh, supposedly, but some of the detractors say, oh, no, it was never been out. It was used in at Auschwitz and other places to kill lots of people very quickly. But spinoffs of that research led to some of the best pesticides we had in the 1940s and 1950s. Also, nerve agents, biological toxins. You know what? You, you found something that if you touch you know, a, a, a tenth of a milligram on human skin, they'll be dead in 10 minutes. What is that? Let's go grab all of their um, labware in the factory before the Russians get here, there's one famous example where the Americans were stripping out factories before the Russians arrived and shipping all the stuff west. When the Russians did arrive and take over that area, they still figured out how to make it, but at least we can make it too. And then we grabbed the, the Nazi guys, the chemical guys who were doing that and said, okay, how do you do this? And they taught us how to make some of the most toxic materials we'd ever seen before. Thalidomide came out of this also. Thalidomide was famous as a... Um, in the late 50s and early 60s, it was used for morning sickness control in girls that were pregnant, women that were pregnant. But after a while, people started noticing a very high rate of birth defects, misformed limbs, missing limbs, missing fingers, uh, cleft palates, uh, mental problems. Mm. And this came straight out of Nazi laboratories. Now, the problem with thalidomide is that it worked really well, except when you make it in chemistry. Any molecule that has a mirror image, basically, it start the, the step before you make the molecule, it's flat. And then you can either attack it from the left or attack it from the right to make a left-handed or a right-handed form. And thalidomide was made in a chemical, labor, a chemical factory, and it was a mixture of left and right-handed forms. And one form was perfectly fine. The other form was a deadly toxin. And, it was, and no one knew that. And so it took a couple of years before the, for, they, for them to yank it off the market. But also the biowarfare program. We took Nazi doctors who were experimenting with viruses, bacteria, ticks. Um, there, were, there were plans that never got materialized. But if we make enough of this stuff, we can drop it on the British when they storm, when they try to I- invade Europe. Or drop it on their military bases with a V-2 rocket in England. Or we can spray it across the Russians on the Eastern Front. Now, that, that didn't work 
and it wasn't going to work and it, it never materialized, but they did stockpile this material. In fact, there was two guys. One of them was called the sword and one of them was called the shield. The sword was the offensive biological warfare branch. The shield, that guy was running the defensive biological warfare branch. They both claimed innocence. They both tried to blame the other guy, but they were clearly in cahoots with one another and knew what each other was doing. And it's very easy to take defensive biological measures and turn them to offensive biological measures very easily. Mm. So just just Nazi science became American science. Yeah. And it's sad. <sighs> it's sobering. Yeah. Near where I grew up. I grew up on Long Island on the South Fork in the Hamptons. But if you would drive to Riverhead, then turn east. So drive west on the South Fork and go around the curve and then drive east on the North Fork. Go all the way out to the end of the North Fork. Um, so we're talking, you know, about 100 miles away from New York City, maybe on Long Island, maybe a little longer. You come to a place called Orient Point. And you can get a ferry there and take it over to New London, Connecticut, which is amazing because you go across the sound. You sometimes see nuclear power submarines. It's really cool. But when you leave the harbor, you have to go around some pilings. And one of them, you do a hard left turn right in front of Plum Island. And Plum Island is where the Americans had our infectious disease laboratory. So hoof and mouth disease, all sorts of things that would... Um, Rindapest and scabies and you know things that would kill vast amounts of farm animals. They were experimenting with them on that island. And it's literally a stone's throw from Orient Point. In fact, deer can swim between Long Island and Plum Island. Yikes. It's supposed to, it was supposed to be isolated. And it's supposed to be a place where the winds blew offshore so that there was no chance of um, contamination, but no, the wind can easily blow toward Orient Point and does often. So it wasn't biologically isolated. It wasn't nearly far enough away, enough away from land. Mm. And this is also a place where they brought the Nazi uh, tick experts who are trying to study tick-borne diseases. Also happens to be the epicenter of the future Lyme disease outbreak. Um, hmm. But that's all speculation. You can't you can't peg anything there. Uh, people have wondered if West Nile virus, which seemed to have been broken out in near New York City, not where it came from in Cuba, but broke out in New York City if that came. And there was another uh, disease that wiped out the Long Island duck industry, which is a you know, multi-million dollar industry. Long Island duckling was famous and it got wiped out by a disease, which could have just been a f influenza or something like that. But they, people are speculating that came from Plum Island. Mm. So again, it's a, it's a mysterious place. It's a lot of stuff they did was top secret. Uh, some of it's just open research on diseases, and that's fine. But another one other place uh, is Fort Detrick in Maryland. That's where our biowarfare center is. And our offensive biowarfare program was terminated several decades ago. And ostensibly now it's all for defensive purposes. We're studying things like, you know, making chimera coronaviruses, see which changes would make it deadly, yeah, <clears throat> things like that. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to wrap this up. It, it it's disappointing. It's it's um it's sad. It's shocking. Yeah, you can't take for granted that the scientists in general, with each passing generation and culture or school of thought, will necessarily have humanity's best interest at heart. Yeah, and you, you kind of lose faith in humanity when you study things like this. It's um it's it's disappointing. I think that's a a good word for it. It's just I'm disappointed in my fellow humans. Yeah. We should have been better than that, and they knew it. And that's why the stuff wasn't openly discussed, because they knew 
that there would be social problems if they admitted it in public. Now, lobotomy was really popular, but it didn't work. The Tuskegee experiment was not discussed in you know the town square of Tuskegee, Alabama. <laughs> no way. Those guys would have been lynched. <laughs> in Operation Paperclip, we did our best to hide the credentials and the history of some of the most prominent scientists uh, in over the next several decades in America. Well, it's complicated to appreciate things like the manned missions to space and to think about how much of that was dependent upon the founding director. It's hard to yeah. imagine. And, and Von Braun too. Yeah. And the death of Jews in a concentration camp. Hard to believe. Literally, we would not have gone to the moon. We wouldn't have a space shuttle. We wouldn't have satellite technology, or at least it would have been delayed by decades had a bunch of Jews not been worked to death in a mine. Wow. Ouch, man, that's sobering. Yeah. Well, for a little bit of lighter <laughs> yes, please. conversation before we leave everybody today, Rob, we cannot leave them like this. No, we cannot. That would be unfair. Totally unfair. And I know you have something special planned. Now, if you're a listener that wants to leave the show like that, then you can turn it off now. <laughs> but I recommend you finish the show with us. I, I have had something I've wanted to do with you for a little while, and this is a part of the show. Okay. We won't always do it, but we'll do it when the time allows. I want to encourage our listeners to ask us questions. You know, send us your messages, give us your comments, whether it be via email or Twitter, Facebook, catch Rob on Facebook. You know, if you can track us down, if you can listen to this podcast, I'm sure you can find a way to email us. So uh, send in your questions with things that you would like us to follow up and discuss from you know, something that is on your mind. Yeah. Maybe from this episode or any other episode. It doesn't have to be this topic. It doesn't have to be this episode. At the close of every episode, you tell people how to contact us anyway. I do. Thank you. You've been yeah. listening, Rob. I wonder. Oh, oh, yeah, I have been listening. Actually, I, I, I've really enjoyed some of the last couple episodes. I, I listened to it in my car and I laugh at myself and I say, <laughs> hey, that's fun. it was great. I, and I, oh, yeah, that's right. I said that. Now I remember that too. So, yeah, I, I listen to myself. It's weird. Okay, so in this case, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be asking you questions until we start hearing questions from our listeners. Because I okay. And full disclosure, audience, I knew that there was a question at the end of the outline. And Joe had typed it in there. I have not read the question. My eyes glanced at it and say, new segment for the show, a, ask Dr. C a question. And there's a sentence after it. And the only the word I know that's in the sentence is teacher. Yeah. I have no idea what Joe's about to ask me. Yeah, any kind of question, any kind of topic raised is fair game here. So Stump the chump. All right, let's go. All right, Rob, on the, Dr. On C. the hot seat, in the hot seat. Yeah. It's not going to be too hard. I'm going to go easy on you this time. If you could be a teacher for a day in the perfect high school or college science class of your choosing, what lesson would you like to cover? For the perfect work day, just like the perfect experience. Dude, I got like 45 minutes for one hour only? Yeah. Um, the miracle of photosynthesis. Nice. We've, co we've covered that. It's been a while. Yeah. We, yeah. We, did, we did an episode about a year ago, probably mm -hmm. the miracle of photosynthesis, glorifying God through the most improbable chemical reaction possible. It's a wonderful subject. Hmm. I thought for a second about the philosophy of science. Cause I love talking about that. I'm, oh, that's very good too. My biblical worldview of science talk. I'm doing it more often now and I love it. And it's just, it's a strange thing for Sunday morning for the preacher to be asking the audience a bunch of philosophical questions and what they think about this or that, or how would they answer this or that. But I'm, it's just such a fun, weird topic. Um, I'm really enjoying it. But no, I think um, photosynthesis would be it. 
or how to explain tides. That's one of my favorites too. That's just that doesn't have much of a God application. Okay, but what about photosynthesis is striking to you? Um, the fact that it's so incredibly improbable, such a fragile reaction. It requires so many cofactors, and basically, you're asking a molecule to grab a fireball. <laughs> I mean, it's like trying to catch a cannonball with a with a with a, a mitt, a baseball mitt, baseball glove. You, you can't do it. But these the photosynthetic chemicals do. They grab photons, which are strong enough to rip that molecule apart. And then you use things like quantum electron tunneling and other strange subatomic physics to do chemistry that makes every chemist drool. It's just, it's an impossible system. And yet all life depends upon it. Awesome. Brilliant answer. See, now all you dear listeners, you can get any kind of question answered uh, just like that. Or maybe it even sparks a larger discussion and becomes a full-fledged topic. You never know. So be sure to send them in. I want to say thank you to everybody for joining us on this quest. I know it was darker. We don't want to linger on the sadder sobering topics on a regular basis, but it's also unavoidable in the field of sciences. It would be awesome if you want to share Equinox with someone that you know that will enjoy it too. We write links and show notes for each episode. So if you want to refer to something that... Hold it. Hold it. Let me I just found it. Uh, audience, episode 22, July 31st of the year 2020. Episode 22 on nightowl.fm slash equinox, photosynthesis improbable to the max. Nice. And we, we will throw that into the show notes because if you wanted to hop back to that one because you hadn't heard it or you don't remember it, it is a good one. And you can find those show notes with every episode and anything else that Rob is referring to with each episode. You can also get more of our content if you join Equinox Plus's membership through Patreon. A link to the membership page is available in the show notes as well. And do check out Biblical Genetics, that's Rob's other project, on YouTube or for his latest videos. If you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You've been listening to Equinox. Dude, that was heavy. Uh, yeah, that was um, disturbing. I didn't realize how heavy that was going to be until we started really getting into it. Well, and but the thing is, it's like if you go there, it's not it's not on you. It is totally a topic. It is just that that horrible. Those things are just that horrible. Yeah, Th- that's something about movies and TV is they usually downplay the depths of evil that people can turn to unless you turn to the the genre of say horror and these kinds of things would show up in horror yeah and it's so disturbing to think about that the darkest examples of science would stoop to that level stoop to the grossest the the the, the most disturbing it would show up in the horror genre yeah hmm.